Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you and good to continue this journey we call restoration, right? Restoration is this powerful gift that Jesus offers us, and during this season of Lent, we're trying to claim that and walk with Jesus throughout His last days to find that restoration that He offers. It's why today we find ourselves at the crucifixion. I know we're not there yet. It's not Good Friday, but we are walking with Him in these last days, and so today we find ourselves with Him at the crucifixion and the glory of what it means for Christ to choose to suffer and die on our behalf. It is crucial and foundational to our faith as followers of Jesus, and therefore why we want to spend some time there today understanding that restoration that He offers. As I was pondering this message, I often reflect when I think of the crucifixion about the ways that some people are willing to sacrifice for others. And some of you may be aware of this story. It took shape some uh, five or so weeks ago. It was reported in the uh, national news uh, agencies, and Mahanches, you probably recall it, but it had to do with a battalion engineer in the Ukrainian army and the war and devastation that's going on there. And as the Russian uh, operatives were moving towards Kiev, this particular battalion engineer knew that he could uh, cause a mine strike on one of the main artery bridges that was coming into Kiev. And so he set up the process and he uh, went through the task of organizing that. And as it came time for him to blow up the bridge to prevent the Russians or at least heavily delaying them from entering Kiev, he realized he was not going to be able to both explode the mine and exit the circumstances. And so he communicated that back to, the, to his uh, superiors, and they said, you need to exit. You need to get out. We'll try another way. Well, you may know, as the news operatives reported, uh, he chose voluntarily both to go in and he chose voluntarily to stay. So he communicated back to his superiors and said, I must stay, I must explode the mine, I want to make this happen. And so in that moment, he made the decision and he stayed. And sure enough, he sacrificed his life. You recall that story? It happened about five weeks ago and he did this, sacrificed his life in order to save his community, in order to hopefully save his uh, uh, country, in order to help provide a means forward. I'm always fascinated by those who are willing to sacrifice their lives. Now, I don't doubt most of us in this room believe that war is a, a, an atrocity, that it literally sort of leads to uh, the worst in our human condition, right? And yet at the same time, what we often witness in war are people who are willing to sacrifice for the greater good, who are willing to commit themselves fully to the greater cause. And that's what this battalion engineer did, right? He suffered the ultimate sacrifice so that he could offer hope and potentially life for his community and for his country. This is what takes shape. None of us really likes war, and yet we laud and honor those who pay the ultimate sacrifice. You know, this is what Jesus did, the ultimate sacrifice in giving His life for the world, to suffer and die on the cross. And I don't know about you, but I have this sort of uh, almost love-hate relationship with the cross. I absolutely cherish it. I adore it. I am uh, grateful for it. And yet I struggle to understand why would someone need to sacrifice? Why would someone need to die? Why would someone need to suffer in order that we 
might be saved, in order that we might have life. It rattles around in my head every once in a while because I believe in a loving God and I cherish the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And I find myself every once in a while struggling with it and yet cherishing it all at the same time, right? And I reflect on the Apostle Paul who wrote, of course, many of the New Testament letters and would write to many of the communities of faith early in the life of the church, and he would help set them up for success, and he would help them better understand the the richness and the wonder and the glory of what it is Christ did and what it is He continues to do in the world. And in one such letter, when he wrote to the church at Corinth, you know, there were many problems at the church at Corinth, and one of them was unity, right, that lack thereof. And at the very beginning of his letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he identifies this sort of conundrum that I sometimes find myself in, and I love the way he addressed it. He simply said, the message of the cross is literally foolishness to those who are being devastated, but it is the power of God for those who believe and are being saved. And that's the gift of the cross, isn't it? The gift of the cross is it seems foolish, it appears weird, it appears strange and not quite right. And clearly somebody who is the King of kings and Lord of lords and who brings a new kingdom and who offers salvation, surely he wouldn't have to suffer and die. That's the seeming foolishness of the cross. But the glory and the wonder and the beauty and the gift of the cross is that it offers life. In fact, Paul would go on to say in the very next chapter of this same letter, In communicating to the Corinthian Christians, he would just say in chapter 2, I've decided that when I'm with you, I'm going to forget everything else, but one thing I won't forget, and that is Jesus Christ and Him on the cross, because it's in and through the cross that they would find life, that we find life, and that we find the glorious restoration that His death, His suffering, and His resurrection bring. So today, let's go to the cross, and let's discover why it is so important to our faith, and why and how it is that it offers restoration, not only for us, but for all of God's creation. Now, the cross, of course, is recorded in all four of the Gospels. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Mark and Luke, we understand that there are not only some criminals hanging with Jesus. But Matthew and Mark identify that there must be some kind of conversation that goes on with them, but they don't describe it. Luke, on the other hand, is the only gospel that describes the conversation while they hang on the cross. I want to call your attention to Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 32, where we hear the account of Jesus hanging on the cross and what it is that provides restoration for those of us who follow. Hear this story now. Two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This 
is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We give thanks for a powerful word of this restoration that's found in Jesus on the cross. So part of what we need to understand is that the crucifixion is not a Christian form of punishment. It's not a Jewish or even religious form of punishment. Rather, the crucifixion was a governmental form of capital punishment, right? The Greco-Roman world, this became a very prominent form of capital punishment, and you can well imagine why, right? I mean, it's very public. <laughs> it's very shaming, and there's no one who would ever witness that who would think, oh, that'd be a great way to die, wouldn't it? Right? Nobody would think that. And in the Roman form of the crucifixion, um, the form of death is rather gruesome. Not only do you hang before your contemporaries and, and, and just kind of show them that you have done wrong, but many of you know, of course, the way in which you die when you hang on the cross. The longer you hang there, the heavier your weight becomes, and your body begins, of course, to pull all of your weight downward so that your arms begin to become uh, heavier and heavier. And often in order to alleviate some of the suffering, people's legs are broken so that the weight can pull them down quicker and so that they can die more rapidly. But when you die, when you're in, uh, in the form of crucifixion, you don't die from the weight of your body. You don't die from the injuries of your arms or your legs holding you to the cross. You die because the weight of your body has formed your clavicles into sickles in your lungs, and they pierce your lungs, and you literally drown in your own blood. It's a gruesome form of death, isn't it? Very shaming very detrimental to the cause of anybody who wants to do something wrong. And so when Jesus is hung on the cross with the two criminals, everyone there equates Him with the criminals. He's nothing better than a criminal. He's nothing better than a no-good son of a gun, right? He's no good. He's clearly suffering and dying in the capital punishment form uh, that we call crucifixion. Anybody who witnesses it would recognize that he had done wrong. Everybody glances, everybody sees, everybody wonders, everybody observes, and they know this clearly is a criminal. All four of the Gospels record that. All four of the Gospels have the criminals there by his side. Two of the three synoptics identify that there's a conversation. And then we have, as everybody watches, Jesus offer the first form of restoration. And it's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? As everybody's sort of jeering at him, looking at him, pondering about what he's done wrong and laughing at him, he says to the whole crowd, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. 
Now, it's interesting because it's possible he's saying this to the criminals right next to him and on, e on either side of them, and he's offering forgiveness for whatever it is that they've done wrong. But it's also possible that he's saying it to the very soldiers and the Jewish leaders who have put him on that cross and who are mocking him and watching him and jeering him, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And there's an instant form of restoration that has neither been asked for nor perhaps even desired, but Jesus is offering it anyway because it is the nature of who He is. It is the nature of what He does is that He offers mercy and forgiveness, is that He offers reconciliation, is that He offers restoration. And it is the powerful gift of Christ for all of creation because here's the first restoration, friends. No matter your circumstances, no matter where you find yourself in life, no matter what you've done before or maybe coming up to do, no matter what's gone on in your life, Jesus wants to offer you forgiveness. So whether you're the soldier who hangs Him on the cross or whether you're the criminals right next to Him in the midst of your sin, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And I pray you find good news in that, and I pray you find restoration in that, because that is a part of the good news that Jesus offers. What is devastating in the moment is that just as Jesus does that and offers restoration to all of creation and certainly to those who were with Him and among Him and watching Him, the text begins to share with us the atrocities of our human condition. They begin to cast lots for His clothes. They begin to mock Him as a Savior. They begin to claim for Him something that He's not going to do. They offer Him sour wine. They taunt Him. They lead Him. They guide Him in other ways. And all of it is in a way to say, you don't know who you are. You don't know what you're doing. You're worthless. If, golly, if you could make this happen, why don't you make it happen? They don't believe in Him. They don't trust in Him. And yet He has already offered them restoration. It is absolutely fascinating that God considers this a way forward because God desires to offer mercy and justice and reconciliation even when we don't deserve it. It is a powerful good news for all who will claim the cross. And then a second restoration begins to happen. It happens between the two who are on either side of him, right? Here are these two uh, criminals. Uh, we're not 100% clear what they do or why they find themselves there, but they are there nonetheless on either side, on the right and on the left. And then they begin to have a conversation with Jesus and with each other that takes uh, kind of the, the polar opposites about what the uh, circumstances are that they find themselves in, right? One of them says, my golly, if you're, the, if you're the king of the Jews and if you're the savior of the world, why don't you save yourself and save us? Why don't you pull us down from this thing? Why don't you make this thing work? Why don't you do something? <laughs> you ever felt that way? Come on, Jesus. Make something happen. And then the other guy has the more genuine argument, if you will, and he says, don't you understand anything? We are on this cross because we deserve to be here. This man has done nothing wrong. He does not deserve to be here. And in a moment and in an instant, in front of God and everybody, because it's not just the three of them hanging there, there's a whole bunch of people standing around watching, right? He makes a profession of faith. This man has done nothing wrong. He does not deserve to be here. 
And by the way, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? He's acknowledging that he's a king. He's acknowledging that he has a kingdom. He's accepting the fact that he is a Lord. And he's offering himself unto him. And I wonder to myself, man, we often find ourselves in one of these two places, don't we? Either we're the half-full glass or we're the half-empty glass, right? Either we're the one who always seems to see a problem in life or we're one who often seems to see a possibility in life. I hope that what we see in the midst of this restoration from Jesus on the cross is not only a restoration for all of creation. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. But it's also an intimate and very special restoration for someone who desires that connection with Jesus and wants desperately to enter into His kingdom. It is a powerful, powerful gift, is it not? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, he doesn't fully get it, right, because he thinks the kingdom's yet to come when, when, in fact, Jesus has already brought the kingdom, but he still understands something, and he wants to be a part of it, and he wants Jesus to help make it possible, right? Jesus, remember me when you get there. And Jesus offers him that personal and that profound, intimate restoration. This day, you will be with me in paradise. And what a glorious image that is, right? Paradise. You'll be with me in paradise. And, and that word is interesting because, of course, it sounds wonderful, and it is wonderful, but it's a unique word. We've not really seen it before in Scripture. We do see it later in Scripture, but not yet in, as the Gospels. Paul would use it only one other time in one of his letters where he describes his own spiritual connection when he gets caught up in uh, the, the paradise that he's encountered through his relationship with God and the power of the Spirit. And then we find it in the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible. You remember, and Revelation is such a powerful book that offers hope and offers the gift of, of finding God's recreation again. And it's at that book that we find the word paradise again, and it gives us a glimpse of what Jesus is inviting him into in his restoration. In the second chapter of Revelation, it simply says to everyone who is victorious, that means everybody who hangs in there, everybody who is faithful, everybody who commits even through the turmoil and the travail, everybody who is victorious, I will give to you the fruit of the tree of life. Remember that tree? That tree will be in the paradise of God. That tree existed all the way back in creation. Remember? Genesis. What Jesus is saying to that man is, you will experience again what God desired for you. You will experience the wholeness of God. You will experience a connection with God. You will be in paradise, and you will eat from the tree of life, and you will have everlasting life, and you will have eternity, and you will have the fulfillment of all that God desires for you simply because you asked. Wow. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that a powerful gift? And you see, friends, this is the mystery and the work of the cross. Because even as sad and um, uh, profoundly disappointing and even atrocious as this crucifixion is, it gives life. It offers restoration, both corporately and individually, both generally and personally. Jesus' suffering and death on the cross, and it brings hope. 
It offers restoration and redemption. And it, it somehow describes and defines love, doesn't it? And Jesus will have told His followers over and over and over again, man, this is going to happen. I'm going to have to suffer and die. He would say it multiple times, and they would say, no, you're the King of kings, and, and, and you're the Savior, and you're the Messiah, and surely you don't have to suffer and die. Surely this isn't what's going to have to work, even though prophet after prophet would foreshadow <laughs> that someone would need to suffer and die on behalf of God's people, that someone would need to give up their lives in order that we might be saved. And now we find ourselves at that very moment when Jesus is hanging on the cross and He's offering restoration to everybody gathered and to the two who hang on either side of Him. And they have become in those moments an undefined friend. And Jesus has suffered for them and Jesus has died for them and Jesus is dying for the world. It's not unlike what Jesus said to His disciples as John's gospel records it as He's telling them that He must suffer and die, and as He's sharing with them that He must go to the cross, and as He's helping them to understand that He must die and be raised from the dead, Jesus says to them, you are no longer my friend, uh, you are no longer my disciples, but you are my friends. And in John chapter 15, verse 13, He says, there is no greater love than this, that one lay down one's life for one's friends. And this is the gift that Jesus offers us in the cross is He becomes our friend, He becomes our Savior, and He becomes the giver of life and restoration for any and all who might want to receive. What a powerful gift the cross becomes. It's why, friends, we want to offer restoration to our brothers and sisters in Mozambique because we want to see them restored to new life. We want to see them uh, get new jobs. We want to help them to find their dignity in those cases where they might have an idea or want to create a new uh, work opportunity to offer them perhaps a microloan that can make all things possible. It's why we want to create a, a new and innovative sanitation system so that they can find restoration in uh, their glorious land so they can become renewed again and restored back to its original creation rather than filled with garbage. What a powerful gift your generosity will be able to bring, and it will help restore to them the joy of their salvation found in Jesus. What a powerful gift the cross becomes, as strange and mysterious as it is. I'm so eternally grateful that God offers us this restoration. I leave you with this final story. It's a story that I heard just this past week. I told you last week I'm getting story after story of people's own personal restoration, and, and this particular story was shared at the staff uh, with the staff last week, and it's so powerful and personal, and it offers that great insight into what God's restoration can be if we'll just receive, if we'll just look. You see, this mom who now has two grown adult children um, uh, several, several years ago when her oldest child was only about five, her daughter was playing with some friends up on a, a bunk bed in a room. And the other two friends happened to be boys who were a little bit rambunctious and loved jumping on and off the bunk bed. You can imagine how fun that is. I remember how fun that is. Not anymore, but it was then, right? 
But as the boys were jumping on and off, the little girl who was five thought, I can do this too, and I want to do this. And mom had already told her she shouldn't do that, but she decided she was going to do it because, man, they were doing it, right? So she jumped off the bunk bed, and she fell wrong. She hit her head. She got a horrible concussion. In fact, so bad that she became lifeless and listless. She could not communicate. She could not move. And they, they were de devastated. They were like, how can this be, and how could this happen, and why did this work? And so they picked her up and rushed her to the ER, of course, got her in the hospital. She remained lifeless and listless for hours. They began to try to communicate with her and talk to her, and, honey, we love you, and, and we desire the best for you, and, and, and we're going to get out of here, and we just want you to know mommy and daddy love you, and when we get out of here, we're going to take you for ice cream. She can't hear a thing, seemingly. She clearly can't talk to them. She has no energy. She can't respond in any way, and yet she regurgitates. I mean, it's a horrible scenario. And the mom recounted to us that um, she went from, in her own mind, in her own prayers, from, I'm going to, uh, I, God, I just want you to heal her, and I want her to come back to life, to she came to a kind of resignation of, I don't know what I'm going to do with all the gifts under the tree. It was around Christmas time, and she'd already resigned herself to her daughter's death. She was devastated. And it was in that moment, she said, that I, I felt the room get warm. And I began to hear a, a, a voice, and it said to me, now you understand how much I love you. My son died for you. And in that moment, she felt peace. She felt a kind of restoration. And she knew that no matter what comes, all will be well. It took about an hour, maybe two, and her daughter began to have a little bit of life, and she began to kind of resuscitate a little bit, and she actually began to speak. And they were all excited, and they were all elated. And, and what the daughter said, first thing after she said, uh, hi, Mom, hi, Dad, is, uh, when are we going to go get that ice cream that you promised me? You see, friends, restoration happens at all levels. Some are deeply profound, and some are very simple. But in all cases, I pray you hear both the words, Father, forgive them, though they do not know what they're doing. And I pray you also hear, on a very personal level, perhaps inside your head or deep inside your heart, today you will experience paradise with me. And you will know your own restoration. And you will know of the powerful and profound love of God. You see, part of what Lent does for us is it helps focus us on the cross. And the cross is one of those most profound endeavors that only the Savior has offered to us. And so I pray that as you look towards the cross and as you discover its restoration for your own heart and your own life, that it may indeed heal your heart and your life. And so, friends, this morning as you come to the table and you receive of the very body and bread of Jesus, I pray that you'll find His restoration. I pray that you'll feel his peace. And I pray that as you 
seek his forgiveness and know his presence, that he will indeed restore your heart. Thanks be to God that that is still possible for all of us and for anyone. Will you pray with me? Holy and gracious God, we are so grateful for your son Jesus, for the way he taught and lived and loved, for the way even God that he suffered and died on the cross, and in and through that made possible the glorious resurrection and the opportunity for new life. God, help us in this particular moment to resonate and to reside at the cross to remind ourselves of its most important relevancy to the world and to us and for the gift it offers to each of us to find His restoration. God, thank You that You still make that possible and that we can still see Him at the foot of the cross. God, this is our prayer, and we lift it in the name of Jesus who suffered and died and, yes, was raised again. Amen. Hey, friends, a part of the glorious restoration that I have the great opportunity to experience is your generosity, the wonderful ways in which you make ministry possible, the wonderful ways that you help transform hearts and lives and help make it real for other people. Thank you for doing that. If you brought a gift with you this morning, we have brown boxes right outside the doors at the white post. You can drop it there. Or if you'd like to make a gift here in the room or maybe even later in the day, you can scan the QR code that's on the screen or you can text the letters T-M-U-M-C to the number 45777. But whatever you give, we are grateful. Thank you.